Hello, my name is Hannah Gumbrill-Ward and I am a solicitor in the family team at Winkworth Sherwood. I'd like to welcome you to the second of our New Year New Year events. Now this year things are obviously going to be a bit different, uh, not least because we'll have no Winter Love Island to discuss. And so rather than having one live event, we'll instead be bringing you a series of four webinars to be released weekly on a Thursday throughout January. Kicking things off will be my colleague Selena Arbe-Barnes, who's an associate in our family team and I, and we'll be discussing issues around cohabitation. Thank you, Hannah. As with last year's events, this series will be covering a diverse range of topics from different teams. Next week, we'll be handing over to the private client team who will be discussing the importance of lasting powers of attorney. On the 21st of January, it will be the turn of the employment team who will be talking about a host of employment-related issues in the context of the truly extraordinary year we've just emerged from. And rounding things up for us, um, rounding things up for us on the 28th of January will be our charities team um, talking about ensuring that your charity donations really make a difference and considerations for setting up a charity or becoming a trustee. The idea behind these webinars is to break down our legal expertise into practical take-home points on issues that could be relevant to you, your friends, clients, anyone you know really. Now in true Blue Peter style, this webinar is one that Selena and I prepared earlier. After this pre-recorded session goes live, you should all be provided with access to it so that you can re-watch it anytime at your leisure. If you do have any questions on what Selena and I discuss, please drop us an email or give us a call. Our details will be on screen at the end and will also be emailed out to you. So without further ado, let's get started. Selena, over to you. Now, it goes without saying that 2020 was obviously an extremely challenging year. But for many, it might have given them an opportunity to reevaluate and to reflect on what their priorities were. And it might be that life plans have taken a bit of a detour or have changed altogether. If we think about it, weddings had to be cancelled and announcements of lockdowns resulted in some couples deciding to move in together sooner than they might have originally planned. Now, pre-pandemic, cohabiting couples or families were already the fastest growing family type in the UK, having doubled in the last 20 years. Most couples with children are married or civil partnered around two thirds rather than cohabiting, which make up just under a fifth. But the proportion of cohabiting couples with children is increasing. Now, there isn't any data on this, but we'd imagine the impact of the last 10 or so months has resulted in the numbers of couples living together that aren't married going way up. So why does this all matter? Well, whether or not you're married can make a big difference when it comes to your entitlement to property and how it should be divided up if your relationship comes to an end. If you marry, there are financial and legal implications, protections if you like, to ensure that both people are provided for as far as is possible and fair. If couples live or buy together without getting married, then strict property law applies. There's a myth, a widely held one, that if you live together with someone for long enough, that you have a common law marriage. But it is just a myth. What this means is that even if you've been in a cohabiting relationship for decades, you've raised children and you've given up your career to do so, you can't benefit from the protection that marriage offers. And in that situation, what you walk away with if the relationship ends depends entirely on how the property is held legally. Now, this is of less concern if both parties to the relationship are earning and, and have assets in their sole or joint names. 
But why this worries family lawyers is because the financially weaker party to a cohabiting relationship is far more vulnerable than their married counterpart would be if the relationship were sadly to come to an end. And what's even more concerning for us is that a huge proportion of cohabiting couples have no idea about their lack of legal rights because they believe they'll be protected under common law marriage. Now, research by the National Centre for Social Research, which was undertaken in January 2019, revealed that a whopping 46% of people are still under the incorrect impression that cohabiting couples form a common law marriage. So given that there's no such thing as common law marriage and the number of cohabiting couples continues to rise, what is there that people can do to provide themselves with some protection? In order to break down how these concepts operate practically and explain to you what you should be thinking about to provide for the future in case things don't go according to plan, we're going to walk you through a couple of scenarios. And we thought we would do so with the assistance of some of the most iconic TV duos of 2020. Well, according to Hannah and me anyway. And don't worry, there's going to be no mention of Tiger King in here. So spoiler alert. We are switching to an alternative reality in which multiple things that went wrong on David and Patrick's wedding day, combined with COVID, meant that they decided to postpone their wedding. Now, life then got in the way and they never ended up walking down the aisle, but they do now have two wonderful children. Rose Apothecary is a successful business and there are several stores, including one in New York that Alexis obviously helped set up and one in London. Now, all this meant that David ended up spending more and more time travelling for work. So they decided they'd move to the UK and that Patrick would quit working for the business and become a stay-at-home dad to raise the children. They bought that house in Surrey that looked like Kate Winslet's cottage from the holiday, just as David had always dreamt of. Ultimately, though, Patrick became fed up of being left alone in the dream house while David was constantly off travelling and they decided to separate. Well, that makes me very sad because I absolutely love David and Patrick. But um, anyway, going into family lawyer mode, let's get down to the nitty gritty. Um, in this situation, what's going to happen to the dream house? Well, because Patrick and David aren't married or in a civil partnership, their rights and respect of the ownership of the dream house and any ongoing financial support are limited. In terms of what happens to the house, we first of all need to consider how Patrick and David own it and what's recorded on those title deeds. Now, is it in one of their sole names? Do they own it jointly? And why actually does this matter? If it's owned jointly, is it owned as joint tenants or tenants in common? So as an unmarried couple, what happens to the house when David and Patrick separate is governed by what's recorded on the title deeds and in any accompanying declaration of trust. Now, as Selena said earlier, it's going to be strict property law that applies here. Okay, so assuming that they own the house jointly, how will them owning it as joint tenants versus tenants in common affect them? Okay, well, first of all, owning the property as joint tenants means the house belongs to David and Patrick jointly. Um, they don't own specific shares in the property and they can't give away a share of it in either of their wills. If either of them were to die, their interest in the property passes automatically to the other. Now, on the other hand, owning the house as tenants in commons means, again, that they jointly own the house, but, crucially, each of them own a very specific share of its value. Now, this could be either equal or unequal shares. Either David or Patrick could give away, sell or mortgage their share, and if either was to die, their share of the property would pass to their beneficiaries under the terms of any will. 
Um, just to jump in, Hannah, um, in case anyone finds this useful, but there was an analogy that my property lecturer at university used to explain the differences between being joint tenants and tenants in common, and it's always stuck with me, um, you, you know, years later. She told us to imagine joint tenancy as owning an apple, with both parties owning the entirety of the apple, and tenancy in common as owning a Twix, with each of you owning a very distinct, you know, a distinct bar and therefore distinct shares. Um, yeah, as I said, might be useful, but a bit of a tangent. I'll hand back to you. And my property law lecturer actually described it in terms of cake. So clearly, uh, oh, <laughs> knew what they were, knew how to grab our attention. Let's say. Um, so back to back to David and Patrick. Well, generally, partners who do purchase property together, particularly if the long game is to get married, they do so as joint tenants. If Patrick and David owned the house as joint tenants and they were separating, the proceeds of the sale from the property would be split 50-50 between them. Now, this is irrespective of any contributions made, and that's financial or otherwise, and irrespective of their earnings and whether it would leave them with enough money to purchase a new property for them to live in with their children. So this is of particular relevance to Patrick, because depending on how long he's been out of work, it could have a really big impact on whether he's able to get a mortgage and how much he'd be able to get. Okay, so we've looked at joint tenancy. In what circumstances would you say that it's appropriate for um, the property to be held by them as tenants in common instead? Well, tenants in common would be particularly uh, important if they were going to be investing unequal amounts of capital in their house. So let's say, for example, they weren't using uh, the wedding fund for the deposit on the house and they were instead using just Patrick's savings. In that situation, the safest way for them to hold the property would be as tenants in common. Um, and are there any additional steps that they should be taking in that situation, you know, particularly for Patrick, so that he can protect his greater contribution to the purchase? Yes, definitely. So, um we suggest that a declaration of trust is drawn up in that situation. And what it would do is set out the percentage of the property they each own, and it would allow their ownership to reflect the fact that Patrick had made that significant capital contribution at the start. So when you're first buying a property, you all should also should think about who's paying towards the mortgage um, and in what shares, and to what extent you want that to be reflected in the percentages of ownership. Now, when that property is sold, it will be divided in accordance with what the Declaration of Trust says. OK, let's say that instead, um, David and Patrick did make it up the aisle. So actually, what we're talking about now is them divorcing rather than separating. How would that change things? Well, it changed things in quite a number of ways. Um, I won't go into all of them, but let's focus on the dream house first of all. So the property would be divided in a way that ensures the children's needs are met. The starting point is 50-50, but if Patrick needed more equity to buy a property for him and the children, and he couldn't raise a mortgage while David could, it might be that he's given a greater entitlement in the property. Um, secondly, if we look at Rose Apothecary, now if David and Patrick were married, even though Patrick hadn't been involved in the day-to-day -day running of the business for quite some time, the fact that he enabled David to be able to commit to it so totally by caring for their children and the fact that the business had been built up entirely during the course of their marriage, those factors would both be recognised as a contribution to the venture and he'd have a clear entitlement to it. Now, depending on how the business is structured, that may not be the case if they were simply cohabiting. And thirdly, um, Patrick may also be entitled to ongoing financial support 
If they've been unmarried, then this type of support would only be available for their children, which Patrick would claim on their behalf. However, if they were married, particularly for a long time, Patrick might be entitled to financial provision from David, um, taking into account a number of factors, including their ages at separation, Patrick's employment prospects, what the arrangements were during the relationship, David's earnings, um, and so on. So I suppose what this all goes to show is that with cohabiting couples, where one party has given up their career to raise the children, and then once those children have flown the nest and the party separates, that person can be left really vulnerable with very limited legal redress. Where the property is owned jointly, as with David and Patrick, I suppose this puts the party on more of an equal footing, depending on how the property is held. But if the property is in just one person's name, that can make matters really quite difficult. <clears throat> now we're going to turn to another couple, um, this time normal people's Connell and Marianne. Uh, now, for those of you who are as gripped by the series as I was, uh, you'll remember that by the end, Connell was heading off to New York for his master's with Marianne staying in Dublin. Um, in the sequel, as authored by me, I should say, uh, Marianne has moved to London. She's bought a flat with deposit from family money. Connell finishes up his master's and joins Marianne in London. He moves in with her and it seems that they finally have the happiness that they both deserve. Well, at least initially anyway. Connell is breaking out as an author, although progress is slow. He doesn't receive a regular income, so instead it's Marianne, who's now working in the city, who makes all the mortgage repayments. Uh, Connell helps out with the bills, and whenever he gets an advance for one of his books, he'll pay for the two of them to go on holiday. And for this reason, he's got no savings to fall back on. Now, very sadly, their relationship becomes strained and they decide to call it off. Marianne asks Connell to move out, which he agrees to, but on the condition that Marianne pays him his share of the flat's value. So what would happen to Marianne's flat in this situation? Would Connell really have any claim to a share of it? I mean, legally speaking, Marianne owns the flat 100%. It's just her name on the title for the property and Connell didn't contribute to the purchase price or to the mortgage. And as Connell and Marianne never got married, his legal rights are far more limited. Um, and as I said earlier, strict property law principles are going to apply here. For Connell to try and assert any rights over the flat, he's going to have to prove that he has a beneficial interest by successfully arguing that a trust has arisen. Now, we promised to keep this webinar light, so I'm not going to go into the various types of trusts now, as that could go on all afternoon. I think the main point to note here is that it can be really very costly to bring a claim to court to establish a beneficial interest in property, and they're really risky claims to run. Ultimately, if Connell was unsuccessful, he could be li li liable for paying not only his own legal fees, but Marianne's costs of the litigation as well. And more to the point, that based on the quite limited facts we've got here, um, I don't think Connell has a particularly strong case that he ought to have a beneficial interest in the property. So really, he's going to be walking away with nothing. OK, so based on that, it looks like Marianne's deposit and the um, capital repayment she's made towards the mortgage are potentially safe for now. But what would put Connell in a better position so he could get his share of the flat? Um, let's say that um, Marianne told Connell that he didn't need to worry about paying towards the mortgage because as far as she was concerned, he had an interest in it. And let's say that 
because of that promise, Connell spent all of his money on the holidays for the two of them, rather than putting any of it into savings or investing in the flats, because Marianne has led him to believe that he would be provided for. In that situation, I think that Connell might be able to argue that he has an interest in the property because he's acted to his detriment as a result of promises Marianne has made to him. Again, it's a tough case to run. Um, he'd, need to, he'd need evidence of Marianne's promise um, and of the detriment that he suffered. And again, it's going to be really costly for him to bring that sort of claim. You touched there on um, Connell investing in the flat. How would that change things in this situation? Okay, well, let's imagine that Connell spent his advance instead on a loft conversion for the flats or on making payments to pay off the mortgage. Then that might put him in a stronger position to establish a beneficial interest in the property because he's making clear monetary contributions. We need to have a look at what discussions he and Marianne had around these investments into the property. Did they intend for Connell to acquire an interest in the property as a result of him making those contributions, for example? If yes, then this would make Connell's case stronger. I think the problem is, is that if there are no legal documents in place and he and Marianne can't agree how the property should be shared in the event of separation, Connell could be left quite vulnerable here as all the onus is on him to establish he has an interest because the, type, because the title deeds say otherwise. So as you can see, in terms of the legal options available to Connell, they're really quite messy and costly. And similarly for Marianne, having to defend those claims would be really expensive, particularly in the first scenario where she might be quite aggrieved at the thought of Connell trying to assert an interest in the property. To be honest, I mean, this all sounds like a massive headache for both of them. Um, So what could they do to ensure that they both have a bit more certainty? When you're doing something really exciting, like moving in with a partner for the first time, no one wants to think, let alone talk about what would happen if things don't go to plan. But it does make life so much easier if you do so. At a minimum, I definitely recommend that they enter into a declaration of trust. Taking the first scenario, whether it's just to make absolutely clear that Marianne has contributed entirely herself to the purchase and that neither of them intend for Connell to have an interest in the property. If Connell is aware of that, then he might choose not to spend all his earnings on holidays and actually make some sort of provision for himself as a backup. It's uncomfortable, but ultimately healthy to have open and honest conversations about money with your partner and what your intentions are, particularly when it comes to property. Um, You can enter into a declaration of trust, not just when you're buying a property, but at a later point as well. So when Connell moves in with Marianne, that would be a good idea to my mind to... um, think about entering into one then. So if we take that final scenario where uh, Connell was paying for either the loft conversion or making contributions to the mortgage, could they enter into a declaration of trust then? Yeah, absolutely. And I would highly recommend that they do, um, particularly for Connell, so that his investment or uh, contributions, a better word, um, into the property isn't lost and to make it clear exactly what his interest is. What it does is just ensure that both parties are on the same page and manages their expectations and gives them a bit of certainty. Okay, so we know that they can do a declaration of trust. Uh, Is there anything else that they could do to just give themselves a bit more certainty? Well, I've given it away a bit with my slides, but never mind. Um, I think that if they want an additional layer of protection, they should consider entering into a cohabitation agreement. Um, That's a contract that would confirm the ownership of the property 
how each of them is going to contribute to the running costs, um, including the mortgage, and sets out what would happen in the event of separation. Although it's really difficult to think about a separation when in the first stages of a relationship, by having those conversations and planning for the future, you're inevitably say, you'll inevitably end up saving yourself um, time and money if things don't go to plan. It's a very lawyery thing to say, but if you think of it as an insurance policy um, and one that's going to save you from potential acrimony down the line, then I do think it's a, a worthwhile investment making. And again, um, cohabitation agreements can be entered into at any time and are worth thinking about before a life-changing event. So moving in together or having a baby, for example. Okay, so we looked at this with David and Patrick, and I think it's useful to have the comparison. So if Connell and Marianne were to marry, how would that change the life of the land? Um, a whole range of factors are taken into account when looking at um, division of assets on divorce. But I think a particularly important one here is going to be how long they're married for. As you've already said, on divorce, the starting point is equal division of assets. However, if one of you's brought all the assets to the marriage, in this case, Marianne, that's going to be recognised as a premarital contribution. But it doesn't mean that those assets won't be dipped into if they have to in order to meet needs. Assuming that they don't have any children, if Connell and Marianne were married for a couple of years, then Connell does have a claim, but I think it's likely to be a modest one. If, on the other hand, they were married for decades, then his claim would increase. There's a, as I say, there's a whole range of um, factors that the court looks at um, as to what would produce a fair outcome. And um, if they were to marry, if Marianne wants to protect her financial contribution, they could consider entering into a prenup. Um, and particularly if they've entered into a cohabitation agreement and then get married, they should consider a prenup in that situation because them having married might mean that the cohab agreement is no longer valid. Okay, so I think the main takeaway from our second scenario with Connell and Marianne and their story is that where one of you is the sole owner of a property and a partner moves in, it's just so important that you're both really clear with one another and legally speaking as to who's entitled to what. And also that I think you keep this under review, like you said, you know, life changes and if a baby were to come along, it would change the landscape once again. If you don't, the risk is, and, and it's a huge risk, that one of you might be left very vulnerable in the event that you separate. Yeah, precisely. Um, the point that we're trying to get across through these scenarios isn't that marriage is a better option than cohabiting or that you have to get married in order to be protected. Rather that if you are cohabiting, um, because there's no automatic protection, you've got to be proactive. So have those conversations about what each of you is contributing and therefore what you would want to happen to the property if things didn't go to plan. And, you know, when you consider how simple something like entering into a declaration of trust is, this really is a no-brainer. So we hope that this webinar has given you some food for thought, not least because it's being held over lunchtime. Um, as I said at the start, if you do have any questions on this topic or any other family law issues, please do feel free to get in touch. Now, we uh, hope you found today informative. Uh, please do tune in uh, next time, this time next week when it will be the turn of Emmy Page and Alice Edwards from the private client team to talk all things LPA. And thank you very much for viewing. Thank you.